Welcome to the Medici Podcast, episode 53, No Girls Allowed. Bibliographies and more, check out Medicipodcast.com. Also, if you like the podcast, feel free to support me on Patreon where I upload ad free versions of the episodes or just tell the history lover in your life about the show. Before we get started, I should note something that's probably obvious to most, if not all of you. I've been referring to Catherine de' Medici as, well, Catherine, but before her marriage, she would have been known by her original name, Caterina. Catherine being the Francophone version of her name. I meant to note this last episode, but it slipped my mind because the habit of just calling her Catherine is so ingrained in my mind. So I hope you weren't expecting me to update you on all of French history up to the point of Catherine's marriage in 1533. But for this episode, I want to give you a crash course on France's monarchy, the institution that Catherine found herself literally wedded to, and what it meant to be a woman within it. For starters, France's monarchy began when a warlord from the Frankish Confederation of German tribes named Clovis took over most of the territories that had been part of the old Roman province of Gaul. During the Christmas season of 508, Clovis converted from paganism to what would become Catholic Christianity, Unlike most of the Germanic kings who were splitting up the old Western Roman Empire, who instead embraced the rival branch of Christianity, Arianism. This would give the French monarchy some cred as arguably the oldest surviving Christian monarchy in Europe. Over time, Clovis's dynasty, the Merovingians, would be overthrown and replaced by their own right-hand men, the Carolingian family who would find their epex in the Emperor Charlemagne. Even so, Clovis's baptism became an important piece of legend and propaganda for the monarchy. The story was that when Clovis was baptized by the bishop St. Remigius in the Cathedral of Reims, a dove brought down an ampulla filled with sacred oil. This was just a gloss on an older legend that Remigius had come across a dying pagan who wished to convert, and he managed to miraculously fill an empty vial with baptismal oil just through prayer. But besides that, the important thing was that by at least the 11th century, the kings of France were anointed with oil just like the kings of ancient Israel, giving the whole monarchy a rather sacred dimension befitting the successors of Clovis and Charlemagne. Never mind that the other European monarchs also got in the habit of having themselves anointed with sacred oil, as you might have noticed if you watched the coronation of the recently crowned King Charles III of Great Britain. Flash forward to 1066. 
King Louis V of France died without a son or a brother. Instead of another Carolingian, the nobles and high clergy of France chose as their next king, Hugh Capet. Hugh came from a powerful family that had long been powers behind the throne, much the same way as the Carolingians used to be the Merovingians. In fact, Hugh's uncle, grandfather, and great-uncle had all been kings themselves. At the time of Hugh's election, there was hope that the monarchy would become an elective one, like what the Holy Roman Empire was becoming. But the Capetians were biologically luckier than the dynasties that ruled over the Holy Roman Empire, with kings who always had adult sons ready to rule when the time came. Also, they discovered one weird trick where a reigning king would have his son crowned too during his lifetime, making the transition of legitimacy from one generation to the next much smoother. So the Capetians would rule from 1066 until they were toppled by a revolution, or maybe I should say the revolution, in 1792, with a relatively brief comeback from 1815 to 1848. Historians tend to break down the time of the Capetians into the Capetian, the Valois, and the Bourbon dynasties, but that's just for the convenience of historians. In pure old-school patrilineal terms, it was all one dynastic line. And that's because France was one of the minority of kingdoms that instituted what became known as the Salic Law, which forbade women or anyone descended from women in the royal family from inheriting the throne. The story of how the Salic Law got started in France is a little complicated, but I think it's worth delving into for an idea of how attitudes toward women and gender get mixed up with raw power politics. See, in November of 1316, King Jean I of France earned the distinction of being the first king of the Capetian dynasty to die without a son. And he died without a son because Jean himself was an infant born after the death of his own father, King Louis X. Jean's death in the cradle left two candidates for the throne. One was Jean's uncle, Philippe de Tall. The other was Jean's four-year-old sister, Jean. A previous agreement Philippe made with Jean's maternal uncle, the Duke of Burgundy, suggested he would have supported Jean becoming queen in the event of Jean's death, with Philippe ruling temporarily as a regent. But either because Jean was still a child, or because Philippe had become ambitious for himself or both, Philippe made his own bed for the throne. He summoned a conference of the Estates General, representatives from all the three classes in France, who you may have heard of from the Revolution. They not only decided that Philippe de Tall should become King Philippe V of France, but interpreted the traditional succession in France's boring women from the throne altogether. Jeanne had very few people, if anyone in power, looking after her interests, apart from her uncle, and Philippe bought him off by marrying him to his daughter and giving him some lands. 
Also, Jean was only four or five years old, and of course the nobility was opposed to the very idea of a queen reading it. It didn't help that Jean's mother, Margaret of Burgundy, was involved in the biggest scandal of 14th century France. She, along with two of her sisters-in-law, were accused of committing adultery with two knights. She probably died in prison, although one legend claimed she was smothered between two mattresses. The fact it was widely suspected that she wasn't even actually the king's daughter did Jean's case no favors. A precedent was set. When Philippe V died five years later, there's apparently no question that his own daughters would ever be eligible for the throne. But the real test came when the throne passed to a cousin, Philippe of Valois, instead of to Philippe V's sister, Isabel, Queen of England. In 1358, faced with two competitors for the French throne, including Isabel's son, King Edward III of England, and Jean's son, Charles de Evreux, a monk specializing in law named Richard Lescaux was put to work. It wasn't enough that France, since Clovis, never had a female queen rule in her own right. With a lawyer's ingenuity, he dug up an old law from the Merovingian era and claimed it proved the exclusion of women from royal inheritance was an ancient principle of French law. It got its name, the Salic Law, from the name of the Salian Franks, the confederation which Clovis had led. The problem was that it was hardly a cornerstone of Frankish or French law, just a provision saying that land granted to someone by the king could not be inherited by a woman. There was even a later addendum saying that a woman could inherit the land if there were no male heirs left. But Richard Lescaux did some creative interpretations. And so, a 6th century property law that didn't even apply to all property, and got changed anyway, became the timeless basis for royal succession. Certainly, an ingrained distaste for female rulers played a role in all of this. But it was also a result of numerous political maneuverings and lost opportunities. Nonetheless, no woman could claim the crown of France in her own right for the rest of the history of the monarchy. Indeed, even among the current pretenders for the crown, at a time when the chance of the French monarchy being restored is less than 1%, female succession and succession through the female line are still not considered valid. Yet this doesn't mean that in France women were shouldered out of power completely. No woman ever held the crown on her own, but there was a long history of powerful queen regents, a history that ran much deeper than that of the Salic law. There were Brunhild and Fredegund, the 6th century queen mothers whose vendetta against each other became the stuff of legend and opera. Then there was Batilde, the one-time slave who rose to the rank of queen and ruled as a regent in the 7th century, outlawing the sale of Christian slaves during her reign. By the time of the Capetians, there was Anna Yaroslavna, a princess from Kiev who wed King Henri I. 
While she signed the marriage contract with her own name in the Cyrillic alphabet, Henri only scratched out an X. She would become the only member of the French royal family who could sign official documents with her own hand. She ruled France as regent for her underage son, Philippe, after Henri's death. But it seems that she was quietly elbowed out of power after she married a nobleman. The lesson remained clear even centuries later. A woman could rule on behalf of a young son, but she had to always prove her loyalty to the dynasty by remaining unattached to anyone but her dead husband as a good widow. No wonder for future queen regents, accusing them of having lovers on the side was always a potent and popular piece of slander. More successful than Anna was Blanche of Castile, who not only ruled when her son Louis IX, the future saint, was a child, but while he was off on crusade. Jean of Burgundy briefly ruled several times for her husband, Philippe VI, while he was off on campaign during the Hundred Years' War. Anne de Beaujou ruled on behalf of her brother Charles VIII while he was still a child. Catherine was probably at least aware of these women, since she liked to cite historical precedents to her sons as a way to gently nudge them toward her point of view. But Catherine, when she arrived at the French court, had plenty of models from at least recent memory. One such recently departed model was King Francois's own mother, Louise of Savoy. Savoy was a duchy in the Piedmont region, in the middle of France, Italy, and Switzerland. Its independence depended on a delicate game of playing its most overbearing neighbors, the Holy Roman Empire and France, off against each other. The people spoke a dialect of French, but culturally the region also leaned strongly toward Italy. One day, their ruling family would become the royal family of a united Italy, but that's far beyond our scope. Louise died several years before Catherine's marriage, but no doubt she learned all about her grandmother-in-law. During Francois's military campaigns, and his time as a prisoner of Emperor Charles V, she ruled France, but even when Francois was around, she was an important advisor and a powerful figure in her own right. It was Louise who went to the courts to fight with Charles de Bourbon, the wealthiest and most well-connected nobleman in the realm, over a vast inheritance, driving him into the arms of Emperor Charles V. It was also Louise who in 1529 negotiated a peace deal with Charles V's aunt, Margaret of Austria. This was the Treaty of Cambrai, also rather condescendingly known as the Ladies' Peace, which I mentioned before. Also involved in drawing up the terms of the treaty, Francois' sister, Marguerite of Navarre. She was a great patron of intellectuals and creatives, including Rabelais, author of the great satirical fantasy Gargantua and Pantagruel. Also, she was an avid writer herself. She remained a major influence politically at Francois' court. Of course, it's harder to parse out exactly what Marguerite did politically, except in specific political happenings like the Ladies' Peace. But I think it is safe to say she had about as much influence over politics as any minister of state, as did her and Francois' mother, 
Still, her power was indirect, and only as much as the king allowed her. When talking about women in power in France, it's something of a paradox. Women born into the royal family were officially barred from the crown. Yet women who married into it, who were always foreign women, could exercise as much power as the king under the right circumstances. Strangely, this was more or less the inverse of the situation in England, where queen regents were rare and tended to rule only briefly, like when Catherine of Aragon briefly took over for her husband Henry VIII while he was still off-fighting. But eventually England came around to accepting women as queens. Why this was the case is... Well, I'm not so sure. Maybe it's just a matter of historical chance. There just weren't that many feasible alternatives to England's first truly recognized queen, Mary Tudor. Whereas in France, Jean still had two adult uncles. It was a very young child herself. Or maybe it's something deeper than that. For our own purposes, it's enough to say that Catherine now found herself in a world that simultaneously barred women from ever sitting on the actual seat of power, yet gave them potent ways to exercise power, either indirectly or quite literally in the name of a husband or son. And there were a number of women at the French court who did exactly that by the time Catherine began to reside there. Strange and paradoxical as this whole environment toward women in power was, Catherine would, nonetheless, thrive in it. Thank you for listening, and buonanotte.